Our Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells in our hearts and gives us truly the joy that we can express during this season of the year when we're reminded again of the birth of Jesus Christ, who came as Messiah, Savior, Lord, and King, Prince of Peace. And Father, we are living in a world that so desperately needs peace. But we know, Lord, that that true peace is in our hearts through the birth of Christ in us, bringing us into the kingdom of God. We're so grateful, Lord, that Christmas means so much more to us than it does to the people in the world. And I ask that you'll help us to keep our focus on you during this time and not get up, get caught up in the rush and the hubbub and the commercialism, but to remember that this is the time of giving gifts because we love you and because of the great gift that you have given to us. Father, we ask that you will guide us and bless our understanding today of your word. We're so grateful for it that we have it in our possession to study and to grasp the truths that you have. And so we ask that you will guide us in that study here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 17th chapter of Genesis, uh, we have seen God again appear to Abraham and to proclaim himself as El Elyon, as God Almighty, and to again reaffirm the promise of his blessing, the promise that a great nation would come out of Abraham and Sarah. And one of the things we noted was the fact that God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And one of the things we're going to be looking at uh, this morning is, of course, then his wife's name will also be changed. In order to seal this covenant, God brought the circumcision into use here and ordered Abraham to have the family uh, circumcised, the males of the family, which uh, they did. So let's begin reading uh, with verse 15 of chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. God not only chose to change Abraham's name to better fit the role 
that God had uh, created for Abraham, but he also chose to change Sarai's name. The change is very small in appearance, switching an I for an H, but the difference in meaning is quite significant. Sarai meant something like my little darling. It was kind of a diminutive type name, almost like a nickname in, in some ways, but it was actually, of course, her name. In exchange for that, she's given a royal name, Sarah, which means princess. In fact, it is the female version of the word for chief or prince in Hebrew. So what she has now is more than just a cute name. Not that there's anything wrong with cute names. But now she has a name that possesses dignity. God proclaimed this name change because he was in the process of removing the stigma of barrenness that she had carried for these 90 years. And he was going to give to her a son. And through that son would be born two great nations, the nation of Israel and, of course, the nation of Edom. And that's why when it says princes or kings, there's a plural there, because it's not only the kings of Israel, but also the kings of Edom that will also uh, arise in succession to her. So the promise that God made to Abraham that from, from him uh, nations would arise, that is from his seed, was also, of course, here being applied, as it specifically was in the passage we read this morning, to Sarah, because she would be the mother of the uh, child whose descendants would be these nations. Now, of course, in the case of Abraham, Abraham will have other children, and we'll read about that later on by another wife. And from them would rise other nations, not particularly beneficial nations to Israel, unfortunately. Now, what's interesting here in this passage is that when Abraham heard uh, the promise here that God was giving, he bows before the Lord in reverence and deference but he laughs in his heart. Now, because of the circumstances here, I think that we have to understand a little bit about this laugh. Certainly there was a measure of, uh, of doubt in it, a little bit maybe, because of the way the wording is there. Uh, when we, we read that particular part, he says, will a child be born to a man 100 years old and will Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? This, this seems to indicate a, a little bit of, uh, of concern that this isn't quite possible. But from the uh, totality of the event as we read it here, it would seem that his laugh was probably more a laugh of joy and, and probably a laugh of amazement. Have you ever been amazed and, and laughter came as a result? Joy, of course, was the, uh, brought about because of the prospect of his beloved wife finally having the child that she had so much wanted all these years, and, and of course, that he wanted too. Uh, just the thought of her, of course, at 90 years old being pregnant was probably a little bit amusing. But uh, I think there was an amazement here, too, in the fact that God was going to have to work a miracle in order for this to come about, because a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman don't normally uh, bring forth children, and we especially know that to be true in our society uh, today. But there doesn't seem to be basic doubt here. It's not like Abraham is saying, oh, sure, God, 
that's not possible and you know it. Why are you saying this to me? No, that doesn't seem to be the attitude here that Abraham, Abraham is displaying because God does not rebuke him. God doesn't say to him, why did you laugh in your heart? Now, God will later, when Sarah, upon hearing this promise at a, a, an event that came a little bit later, uh, does laugh, and God does rebuke her at that particular moment, but he does not rebuke Abraham here for his laughing and for the wondering in his heart because God knew he was a man. He was a human being, and human beings cannot conceive of such a thing happening in the natural but it's also very interesting as when, when we get to the passage shortly about Sarah, God rebukes her, but he doesn't say, okay, because you laughed, I'm not going to bring the child. No, he carries through and he brings the child just as he promised he would because he knew that deep in Sarah's heart, she was a woman of faith. You and I can be a man or a woman of faith and yet there are times when, when, you know, shadows of doubt do arise, when we're uncertain how God can do this or how God will do this. But that doesn't mean that deep inside we just have no faith in God at all. No, we do have that deep-seated faith if we're truly his children. Now, Abraham here displays his true love for Ishmael by beseeching God to allow Ishmael to become the transmitter of the covenant. It's as if, of course, then it wouldn't be necessary for this son to be born. But God is not about to make this change of his plan. God has eternally set his plan. Abraham is to be followed by Isaac, and Isaac is to be followed by Jacob, and Jacob is to be followed by the 12 uh, patriarchs of the nation of Israel. This was God's plan, and he's not about to change his plan, say, oh, okay, scratch plan A, I'll go with plan B and make Ishmael the transmitter. No, God was not going to do that. He was not going to endorse the foolishness and the faithless act which brought Ishmael into the picture in the first place. You can be sure that's one thing God does not do. He does not confirm us in our sin. He does not come along and bless us when we are acting in an irreverent and a faithless manner as if to say, well, you know, that's really okay. It's sort of like if, if we do not punish our children when, when they act, particularly in a rebellious way, uh, we are confirming them in that and making it as if, well, it's not really that important. You'll get over it someday. And the problem is they won't get over that because the heart of rebellion seems to grow bigger and bigger as time passes, if there is no rebuke and no consequence. The child of promise was going to be born to her that God had made to be the mother of the Israelite race. And he was going to bring this life to this 90-year-old woman by a miracle. And that's so interesting to us because at this time of the year, what do we commemorate? We commemorate a miracle, the miracle of the virgin birth. There are so many who, even in the so-called Protestant church, want to do away with that miracle. They want to make fa uh, Joseph the father of uh, Jesus in the flesh because for some reason they can't believe that God is capable of such a miracle or that God would perform such a miracle. Now, if we're committed to deism, the idea that God's way off there in outer space and, you know, he set everything going and he's not going to interfere, then I suppose we have to seek such an answer. 
But as you read the Bible from the first chapter of Genesis to the very 22nd chapter of Revelation, all you see is miracle after miracle of what God has done. And, and this miracle is just one in the long list of hundreds and even thousands of miracles that God would perform on the way to bringing about the virgin birth, which, of course, is the greatest miracle of all. Not only in the physical act of, of a child being born to a virgin, but in the very fact that Almighty God would send His Son to die for creatures who even after they come, become people of faith can't seem to get it right much of the time. We keep deviating around on our path. At least I have that problem and I suspect most of the rest of us do too. What's interesting is that uh, God tells them what to name the Son. This miraculous child was going to be named Isaac, which means laughter. Ever thought of naming your child laughter? This, of course, was not done to remind Abraham that he laughed in his heart or Sarah that she laughed in her heart when God made the promise because God is not that kind of a God towards his children. But rather, it was to remind them of the joy that they would experience in having the promised son finally come the miracle of a loving God giving to his faithful people the greatest joy of their hearts. God loves to give us good gifts. And sometimes what we consider to be a good gift and what God considers to be a good gift, they don't always equate. We have some idea, oh, a good gift, oh, God, oh Lord, would be a big 4 by 4 you know? Shiny new 4 by 4 Or, a, you know, a big boat or something of that nature when God is trying to do in us something even greater, He's trying to make us into His true children who have peace, who have joy, who have faith, who have hope, and can minister to those around us in their deepest needs. In verse 20 of this particular passage, it reads, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. God heard Abraham's prayer. Abraham said, O oh God, that Ishmael would be the one who would walk before you and be the carrier of the covenant. And God said, No, 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 no. But God did hear his prayer, and God loved Abraham, and God loved Isaac, I mean Ishmael, as well as he would love Isaac. And although God denied his request that he be the agent of the covenant, he nevertheless told Abraham that he'd heard his prayer concerning Ishmael, and he would bless Ishmael, and he would make of him a nation very similar to the nation of Israel, a nation that would have 12 patriarchs at its head, just as Israel would have Isaac's son Jacob would bear, would, would be the father of 12 sons. And those 12 sons would be the patriarch of the 12 tribes. So would be for Ishmael. He would have 12 sons, and they would be the patriarchs of the 12 clans or tribes within the nation of the Ishmaelites. Great nation would rise up uh, from Ishmael. It wouldn't always be a nation of blessing to Israel. As you probably remember later in the book of Genesis, the Ishmaelites play a very prominent role because they buy Joseph out of the pit. Well, you know, in a way, they became his savior 
because some of the brothers would have killed Joseph. But Reuben, whose name meant unstable as water, uh, had enough guts, <laughs> had enough guts to, uh, to try to protect Joseph and uh, not let them kill him. And then, of course, they agreed to sell him <laughs> into the hands of whom? The Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites would carry him off down in Egypt and sell him. And this you, we can look upon as they participating in the evil and the tragedy, but what do we have instead? Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So the Ishmaelites actually became agents of salvation and agents of blessing for the nation of Israel in preserving the life of Joseph. We're going to look at the Ishmaelites a little bit more closely when we get to the 25th chapter of Genesis. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. In verse 21, But my covenant will, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. He made it a very, very uh, specific point. The child will be born of Sarah. The child will not be Ishmael. It will not be any other person. It will be Sarah's son that will be the one who will bear the covenant down from this generation to the next. And to make the point very, very clear, he said, and this child will be born in this season next year. That must have sent a chill up and down Abraham's spine. Because always before this, the promise had been somewhat nebulous. Someday a son would be born. Now remember, the promise was made way back when? When he was 75. He's now going on 100 years old, 25 years later. And, and the promise was there, the son would, was going to be born, but year after year passed and no son came. And Abraham saw himself getting older and he saw Sarah getting older, less and less capable of, of bearing children, but now God says, it'll be a year from now. A date is finally attached to the birth of the promised son. Why? Why did God wait so long? Why couldn't Sarah have borne the child when she was 66 rather than 90 years of age? Well, for many reasons, not the least of which was the fact that God was trying the faith of Abraham and Sarah perfecting that faith so that they would be able to transmit to this very son a strong faith tried by 25 years of waiting. Not only that, I think God delayed because he wanted them to know that this son didn't come just as a happenstance or just because you could do it, but only because he was a miracle of God himself. The child laughter would be a miracle. And God wanted them to know that. And for that child to know that he was the result of a miracle, that God had intervened in the affairs of mankind, and God had blessed because God had a plan to carry out. And that Isaac would be the transmitter of the promised seed, and that ultimately would bring about the Messiah. And knowing that he himself was the result of a miracle would certainly encourage his faith enable him to become the man of God that wanted him, that, that God wanted him to be. Now that, his, now that their faith had been tried, lo, these many years, 
God is going to reward that faith with sight. They would see, finally, the birth of that promised son. Now, what's interesting is, as soon as God made that promise, the passage says he disappeared. Poof. <laughs> the theophany is over. God is gone in whatever form he appeared before Abraham. And what's interesting is, the very last thing that he said before he disappeared is, the sun will be here at this season next year. And he was gone. That was echoing, certainly, in Abraham's mind. And he needed that promise to be reinforced. And Sarah, of course, needed it too. Let's look at uh, verse 22 of chapter 17. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Notice Abraham does not ham and haw and think, oh, this is going to be painful. Let's, let's put it off for a few days. It says, in the very same day, he says, this is the plan of action, folks. You know, it didn't probably go through the crowd with, with you know, great joy um, reverberating at the thought. He had himself circumcised immediately. I'm sure he did it first to kind of set the tone and set the pattern. And Ishmael was probably next. And then all the males in his employ were circumcised that very same day. Abraham was demonstrating his faith by his action. And that's very, very important. And of course, the New Testament makes that point, and, and particularly uh, the book of James, which Luther called a right strawy epistle. James, chapter 2, reading at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. You probably are well aware of the battle that raged over, <laughs> in the Protestant church anyway, over whether James should be a part of the New Testament canon. Uh, Luther was quite concerned <laughs> about it, and some of the others were too. But as you read the book of James, you know very well that James is simply making a point very clear so that individuals would uh, realize that to claim to have faith and yet have no fruit in your life to validate that faith is to claim a false faith. And James states the, the, his, his uh, premise here very, very strongly so that some who read this book sort of uh, you know, in a light way, might get the idea that he's saying that, that salvation comes by works, but he makes it very clear that's not what he's saying. He is simply saying that if you have faith that produces no works, then your faith is dead. Being alone, it's not true faith, is what he's saying. And if you have true faith, then there are going to be righteous works which flow naturally from it. And he uses Abraham as an example. And he uses, of course, his uh, trip up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, this very promised son we're talking about. Laughter. Only no one was laughing that day. But this event we just have read about exemplifies the very same thing. He could have hemmed and he could have hawed and he could have put it off and he could have said, this is going to hurt and how can I make everybody go through this? Uh, but he didn't. Instant obedience was what he was in for. And by that, he was demonstrating the validity of his faith. He was creating a situation where everyone would know that Abraham truly believed the word of God and he was willing to act on it even if it was painful, even if it was very, very unpopular. And you can imagine that when he shared with his, uh, the males of the household, who were hundreds, that this was not exactly, uh, you know, an exciting thought. And it, and it probably uh, wasn't accepted by everybody with equal joy. In fact, probably many grumbled and griped and said, what in the world is this, this the old man's gone off his, you know, lid somewhere. And, uh, but nevertheless, what it does demonstrate in the fact that it happened was the respect that they had for this man, even if they thought he was, you know, was, you know, lost a few cards from his deck or something, they, they respected his authority as clan chief, and they were obedient to him. So what do we have? Mass revolt? <laughs> no, we have mass cooperation. Reminds me of the the day 1,004 years ago when Vladimir of Kiev ordered the population of the city of Kiev into the Dnieper River, all of them to be baptized in the name of the Christian God. Many of them are, had never even heard of the name of the Christian God. But uh, this, of course, is considered the birthday of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, when that event um, occurred. And you could be sure a lot of those people griped about climbing into the cold Dnieper. I mean, there's really nothing warm in Russia. Uh, and uh, Kiev is not a particularly warm place, although it's a little warmer than Moscow. And of course, it's not in Russia, it's in the Ukraine. But 
uh, not everyone was probably real thrilled at the idea of being baptized in the cold Dnieper, but they did it because they respected their king. And so the authority of Abraham prevailed here. And they carried through in what was obviously a very personal matter uh, and serious matter for, for the men here. All right, let's plunge into chapter 18. Let me read the first eight verses. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. The very first verse gives us the scene uh, of, of this particular event. And let me first note the setting. The implication here is it's probably in early afternoon, somewhere probably between one and three. In the afternoon, it's called the heat of the day. Uh, he himself, Abraham, was sitting in his tent in, just inside, at the sh in, in the shade, there at Hebron. The event itself is clearly another theophany because Moses tells us, and the Lord appeared, and then the events are described. Now, Abraham doesn't know that at first. Uh, to him, it's just three people out there, travelers. Uh, he doesn't know this is going to be uh, another encounter with the Lord, although uh, he does by the end of this particular encounter. Uh, the timing is interesting here. We can know that this particular event occurred very, very soon after the theophany we just finished studying in chapter 17. And we can know that by looking, first of all, back at 1721, where he says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now look at the 10th verse of the 18th chapter. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So both passages tell us that about a year from that time, the son was going to be born. That doesn't mean it has to be a year from the exact hour, but this season, at this time. So that tells us that what we're reading about here in chapter 18 occurs very, very soon, possibly within just a few weeks of the event we just finished reading about there in chapter 17. At the time, what Abraham saw appeared to be three men traveling. Now, we, we, there's no way for us to know uh, where Abraham's tent was pitched exactly. Uh, if you've ever been to Hebron, you know that 
the city sits uh, on the top of the ridge, and there's a main road that goes through it, which would have gone through it in the days we're talking about, too, only it was obviously just a dirt trail. It was part of the ridge route that ran through from city to city, then ran south and then down into the Negev. Um, and if you've been to Hebron, you know that the, they, the, there's a great Herodian structure that was built on top of the cave of Machpelah, which uh, Abraham built, uh, that is bought, uh, in which to place his wife, uh, Sarah. Uh, but we can't tell from this passage how close he was even to that place. So whether he was close to the road and, and, and his tent opening was oriented towards the road or not, we don't know. Were these people walking in the road or were they just walking out through the landscape? Well, it would be a little unusual if they were just walking out through the landscape. Uh, most travelers stuck to the road. And so it's very probable that somehow his uh, tent was oriented towards the road. And so he saw these three men traveling uh, through the countryside from his tent. Now, as you read the passage, it sounds like hospitality run amok, you know. <laughs> you run out there and grab these guys and bring them in. You're going to give them a bath and you're going to let them sleep. And you're going to feed them and, you know, <clears throat> go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, right? That sounds like what he's doing here. But, but really, all he is doing is carrying out what was and, and largely still is typical Near Eastern Bedouin hospitality. Um, I've never experienced in, it in that sense, but I've read a lot about it, and I've seen the Bedouin tents, probably much like uh, the tent that Abraham had, and the Bedouins out there are extremely hospitable to strangers. In fact, they are almost more hospitable to strangers than they are to their own kind, unfortunately. And uh, so this, this is, is nothing really terribly unusual. But there are a couple of un unusual factors in this particular description as we read it here. First of all, I think Abraham was a little bit amazed that these three guys were traveling all by themselves. Um, usually travel was carried on in caravans. Uh, usually people were moving, if they were going very far at least, they, they moved in caravans because with caravans there is safety. There is safety in numbers. We're talking about a part of the world where there was no uh, unified government there was nothing to bring law and order to this part of the world. And even when there was a unified government, it wasn't particularly safe. Remember when Rome ruled? You'd think, whoa, Rome, the mighty Rome. Uh, they did bring a measure of peace and prosperity, but Jesus in his parable talked about the man who went down to Jericho from Jerusalem and got beat up and nearly killed and robbed. I mean, that happens even in the best of societies with the strongest of governments. So in a situation that is almost anarchic as it was at this particular time and place, it, it just really wasn't too normal for individuals or small groups of people to be traveling alone because they were fair game for any Bedouin group that was into, into uh, a few extra bucks. And it's very characteristic. The Bedouin peoples who live in that part of the world, then not only in that part of the world, in many parts of the world, part of the way they lived was by raiding. You know, they, they usually uh, raised cattle and sheep or goats or something, but they also increased their wealth by raiding. They would raid small towns and cities. They would raid even caravans. So a little bit unusual for these three guys to be out here traveling alone. At least, certainly, that must have been in Abraham's mind. But even more importantly, they were out traveling in the heat of the day. 
Now that was extremely unusual. Anybody who was a seasoned traveler knew that when it was the heat of the day, you got in the shade. You didn't travel in the heat of the day. You could have a sunstroke. Maybe they already had, and that's why they were traveling in the heat of the day. This certainly must have struck Abraham. Any sane man would be in the shade someplace, not out there hiking uh, down the road with the sun beating down on his head. So I think his sympathy was somewhat aroused for these guys, uh, above and beyond his normal uh, Bedouin sympathies. And so he rushed out to, uh, to get them out of the heat and to bring them back so that they could have rest and refreshment. Come on in, you guys, and get out of the heat, and, and let's, let's get you cleaned up and get you some food. Verse 2 of this passage tells us that they were standing opposite him. The word opposite can mean a lot of things here. That is the Hebrew word here. It can mean above. Uh, the implication seems to be was that they had come to a halt. They had stopped in their travels and that they appeared to be looking at Abraham or at least towards his homestead there. And this in itself might have been a further thing to beckon Abraham. It's as if they were looking with longing towards his tent, hoping that they might be invited in so that they could have some rest and get out of the heat. So this probably was further stimulus for Abraham to, to hastily <coughs> run out there, intercept these men, and to extend hospitality to them. It's interesting that when he ran out to them, he paid homage to them. He bowed down before them, which was, again, very typical Bedouin practice. Now, the word translated bowed here is also the same word which in other contexts is translated worshipped. Now, it's not being used in that sense here. He's just showing deference at this particular point. But it is a very appropriate action, which he didn't understand at that particular time. Because, as we'll see, the Lord God is one of the three. Abraham does address the men and says, My Lord. This is not to be interpreted as him acknowledging that God was here. Because, as you'll notice, it's translated with a small l. At least it is in my particular uh, translation. And that's purposeful because the word is Adon, A-D-O-N, which is not the word used for God. It's the word that means Lord or Master. It's sort of like in the Middle Ages, where the vassal always referred to his suzerain as my Lord, uh, the, my Master, the one uh, whom I serve, with no implication of deity being involved at all. This is the very first use of Adon, of this particular form of the word in Scripture. Although it is used very soon again in verse 12, where uh, Sarah refers to Abraham as my Lord. Now, wherever the term Lord has been used before in Genesis, it's been used with a capital L, and it is the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh except in two instances where it is Adonai, which is the divine form of the word that we're talking about here. So, in this particular instance, Abraham is using a term of deference, but not of divinity. Well, Abraham prevailed upon the travelers to, to come to, over to his tent 
where they could rest in the shade of the tree. The oaks of Mamre, the, probably what they call in that part of the world the terebinth, which is a tree that looks very, very similar to an oak, but is not of the same genus as the oak that we're familiar with here. And they were to come and, and they were to recline on a cloth that had been spread on the ground for the very purpose to which he was inviting them. And then he offered them the common courtesy of water for the cooling and refreshing of their tired and dirty feet. Now, you know, we know that in this day, as well as even in Jesus' day, the roads were not paved. They were all dirt. And uh, in the wet time, they were mud. In the dry time, they were dust. And shoes in those days were generally just open sandals, so feet got extremely dirty. So it was uh, considered to be the best form of uh, hospitality to, first of all, uh, provide for the washing of the feet of these particular individuals. And then further, he offered them food if they would stay and visit for a while. Hmm. Now, in those days, there was no television, right? No telephone, no radio. Uh, you couldn't just sit down and flip the switch and have the whole world flood into your living room. And, of course, there was no other form of, I mean, there was no real form of entertainment other than, than conversation. And so having these visitors was not considered a chore or an interruption, but it was considered to be a delight. Hey, come and visit with me. I need some news, you know. I need some fellowship here. I'm tired of talking to the sheep or whatever. Well, of course, he had a big household, so he had plenty of people to talk to. But they didn't know any more than he did about what was going on. And what really is interesting about this, and, and we kind of lose track of this, is the fact that even until uh, into the modern era of history, the only news you heard was the news that came by somebody walking into your village from the next village over. Um, you know, the, the printed page does come into use in the West um, in the 15th century, but most people couldn't read, so it didn't do a whole lot of good uh, for most people. So this, this um, communication of people by word of mouth was extremely important. So you guys come and you sit down and uh, you tell me about what you know and, and we talk and I'll feed you. Now what's interesting here is that the word translated bread in verse 5 where he says, I will bring a piece of bread, uh, is the word that can mean bread specifically or it can mean just food in general. And we know that from what follows here in the description that obviously he was implying a meal, not just a, you know, just a dry hunk of bread here to stick in your mouth, because he brings all of these other things for uh, them to eat. The word rendered bread cakes here is a very, very different word. It's not the same word at all as the word used in verse 5 for bread. And what it refers to is the round, flat uh, bread made with wheat or barley, which is very similar to what we today call pita bread. Now, have you ever gone to a restaurant and uh, ordered a sandwich and sat and sat and sat <laughs> and joked with one another, well, they must have to go out and harvest the weed or they may have got to go out and kill the cow here in order for us to uh, have our uh, food. Well, in this count, it's no joke. 
This is not Mac Abraham's. Uh, they have not pulled into a fast food joint. Sarah has to run in, I mean, Abraham has to run into Sarah and say, get some flour together and uh, work it up, knead it and bake it. We've got to have some food, some bread for these people. Well, it'll be hot bread right out of the oven. Great stuff, I mean, sure. But something she couldn't just, you know, whip up with a hasty little, uh, you know, pour the batter in, put some water and throw it in the oven type thing. Uh, and then, on top of that, he's got to go out and chase down a calf. <laughs> Take the calf to a servant and say, look, butcher this, this little guy and prepare him because we've got to feed these people. I mean, literally has to kill the calf in order to provide the food for him. He doesn't have just a stew sitting in the pot over here. He's going to bring out and, and, and uh, dish out some for these fellows. He's going to put on a real a meal for them. And so they're going to have to wait a while. Now, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us, for one thing, that they didn't live in the fast track like we do. A time wasn't so critical. They didn't keep saying, oh, brother, you know. What is it at some of these restaurants, if you don't get your food in five minutes, they give it to you free or something like that, you know? And on top of that, we have to eat it in three in order to... And we wonder why our digestive systems revolt after a while. Here they are. They're relaxing. They're taking their time, waiting for the food to come and uh, conversing with Abraham all during that time kind of a lifestyle you could almost wish for, isn't it, in some ways? There are an awful lot of things in our life that uh, I'm sure we're glad for, but it seems like we want to live two or three or four lifetimes in one. So we have to cram it all in there, and we have to race from one thing to the other, it seems. Well, not Abraham and not these visitors. But finally, he brings the food comes out with the bread, the meat, curds, it says, something a little bit like cottage cheese, and milk. Don't have to ask him whether you want decaf or, you know, whether you want, uh, you know, which big low tea do you want or whatever. Just bring him out some milk. Now, what is also interesting is they ate the food, which tells us what? They weren't apparitions. They weren't ghosts there. They weren't figments of Abraham's imagination. They were real. They were flesh and blood. They actually ate the food. Um, this, of course, doesn't strike us too strange, I suppose, because we know that Jesus, after his resurrection, said, touch me. And he ate fish, and, and uh, you know, there he was in real flesh and blood. And so were these three. Now, Abraham here demonstrates a very Christ-like attitude. He waits on these guests. He was a man of great wealth and power. He was a clan chief, a sheik, if you will. He had talked face-to-face -face with the living God. Huh, just think if somebody today had done that. Boy, they'd go around with a big badge. I talked with the living God, you know. And they'd want you to, uh, you know, main, name, build some big temple and, with their name or something on it. But not Abraham. He's willing to serve total strangers. And, and that reminds me very powerfully of the passage that uh, you're quite familiar with, I'm sure, in Hebrews 13, where we are admonished to do exactly this. 
in, in Hebrews chapter 13, the first two verses, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. That couldn't be any more pointed. It couldn't be more descriptive than if the writer of the Hebrews had this very event in mind when he wrote that particular passage. This is a literal example of a clear New Testament teaching. We are admonished to follow this teaching, extending Christian love and hospitality. We're told to use every opportunity to reflect the love of Christ into this dark, dark world which is around us, especially to those who are in great need. We live in a time and we live in a place where so much emphasis is upon consuming our time, our strength, our energy, and our wealth in pleasing ourselves, in our own pleasure and in our own comfort. You know, the sofa's five years old. Oh, rats, we need a new one. You know, we, we can't live with this old five-year-old couch. I mean, it's going to have to be clean someday, so we better just go out and buy a new one. God admonishes us in Old as well as New Testament to rather focus that time, that strength, that wealth, on ministering to those who are in need in Christ's name. Now, that doesn't mean we can't live with a measure of comfort. It doesn't mean that we can't spend some time and effort in pleasure. But it, the point is, where is our focus? If our focus is on comfort and our focus is on pleasure, then we miss the whole mark of what Christ is talking about. He, he gives us the good things that we have to enjoy. But at the same time, our heart attitude has got to be, how can I reach out to those who are in need? How can I touch another's life so that they see the reality of the love of Christ? The willingness of Christians to demonstrate the love of Christ in, in a tangible way is, is really the primary testimony of God's reality in the world today. How is anybody else going to know God is real? unless we as Christians reflect that reality into the world. And we can't do it just by saying, be warmed and be filled. We can only do it by actually touching lives in one way or another. I, I have the same passage which we read earlier uh, here, or at least a portion of it, going back to the concept that our faith has got to be demonstrated by our good works. And so we've got to do those things that demonstrate the validity of our faith, as James tells us there. Our faith is substantiated by acts of love carried out in the strength of the Lord. And I think that's very, very critical. And that's very important for us, I think, at this time of the year, at this season of the year, where so many families are taken up with gift giving, but just, you know, the pain of having to choose something to buy a gift for somebody just for the sake of giving them a gift because they'll be offended if I don't give them a gift. And then the, 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 you know, the wish to keep receiving gifts uh, we can totally miss the fact that the great gift, the greatest gift, is the one God has already given to us, and that's the gift we can give to others and share by our love, by our words of encouragement, by our prayers, by whatever means God <coughs> enables us to do that. And that really, I think, is the real lesson that's so important here in this particular passage concerning Abraham's hospitality. 
We're going to go on and see, of course, the, the, the key reaffirmation of the promise. We're going to see uh, Abraham as intercessor and what that meant. But I think at least uh, this first portion of that chapter deals with the significance of reaching out sometimes to total strangers and ministering to them.